Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In the new book On Bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City, Evan Friss traces the colorful and often fraught history of cycling in New York. He uncovers the bicycle's place in the city over time, showing how it has served as a mirror of the city's changing social, economic, infrastructural, and cultural politics since it first appeared in large numbers in the 1890s. I'm Kara Schlichting, an assistant professor of New York City history at Queens College, CUNY. Today, I'm talking to Evan Friss, an associate professor of history at James Madison University and the author of On Bicycles. This podcast is hosted by the Gotham Center for New York City History in partnership with the New Books Network. Welcome, Professor Evan Friss. Hi, Kara. Thank you for joining me today to talk about your new book, On Bicycles. Thanks I'm ex- for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm excited to get to hear more on how you have become a historian of cycling in New York. This is your second book on bicycles and urban America, correct? That's correct. Can you tell me how you came to this topic? Well, I started uh, with the the first topic somewhat accidentally, I suppose. I was interested in the history of New York City and and urban planning and and wrote a seminar paper about uh, a 19th century urban planner in New York City. And one of my classmates, in the context of her own research about street names, uh, had come across references, many references to bike clubs in the late 19th century that seemed to be present at uh, these city meetings and had been lobbying for street names to be changed and had been lobbying for all sorts of other things, infrastructure, asphalt, new laws. Um, and I had known something about this 1890s bike boom, um, but this provided some some inspiration to then later write a seminar paper about um, this sort of bike boom at the end of the 19th century. And then when it came to write a dissertation. Uh, I had I had sort of forgotten about that, but my other ideas for book length works were um, never really brilliant <laughs> or even satisfactory. So uh, I came back to this idea, and when I was living in New York, I thought a lot about mobility for my own self, and I had ridden a bicycle as a practical way of getting to class and. Uh, moving about the city and and was thinking about, you know, how it is that mobility shapes my life and how it is that it shapes the design of the city and everyone else's lives and why it is that we make the choices that we do uh, to get from A to B in the ways that we do. Fascinating. A topic that gave you not just one good book, but two. It seems like you made the, the right shift back then in grad school. When you think about mobility, where do you see this concept 
as something to be investigated through a historical lens. Where do you see this situated in the the different subfields of history that you are working in? Can you talk a little bit about the fields you're talking to? Sure. So I think the consequences for the kinds of mobilities and transportation choices that we all make or that are privileged by government or society at a particular time have profound consequences in, in many different ways. So while the bicycle is admittedly a small player in, in New York City and uh, elsewhere in American cities as a piece of the transportation puzzle, still, even, even cycling uh, over the course of, of the city has had profound effects on New York and the lives of those who live there and in a number of different ways. So there's social and cultural aspects. The bicycle has not just been a means of, of practical travel, but also a form of recreation and a way for people to socialize by joining clubs, going on group rides. Uh, and the bicycle has at various points in time been a kind of polarizing cultural symbol that has meant changing things to to different kinds of audiences. There's also, of course, the the subject speaks to obviously uh, questions about urban planning, history, and urban design, uh, as well as environmental history. Obviously, the consequences of uh, how we move about have profound uh, effects on the landscapes that we live in and of course, uh, pollution, which is something that even early cyclists knew about, even if in very different contexts than we do today. There was no talk of climate change, but the bicycle was seen as a kind of savior to replace the foul-smelling horses and the manure that they dropped and and other kinds of um, polluting vehicles. So when one does transportation history, in a way, it might seem seem narrow, but it really unlocks, I think, many different disciplines or sub-disciplines or sub-fields um, of history and, and even beyond history. And can you tell us why the history of cycling in the way it brings up questions of mobility and urban design and social and cultural identity? why this is a history that should be centered in New York City? Well, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be centered in New York, but New York offers some unique opportunities to examine these questions. So obviously New York is, is you know, it's the largest city in the country. It's incredibly dense, especially Manhattan. And so in looking at the question of what is the role of the bicycle, compared to most American cities anyway. It's a city where the bicycle seems ideal as a solution uh, to solve many of the complex riddles of the transportation network. So uh, the so-called last mile problem, how do you get people from the end of a subway stop to their destination? Um, New York, of course, is not the only American city, but it's in many ways because of its density and then the scale, uh, a city where cars just are, are, are not exactly the ideal way of moving around. And although Americans prize their automobiles, 
with eight and a half million people, there's simply just not enough of roadways and having people uh, move about by car creates all sorts of, of problems, some obvious, some less so. So New York is the kind of city that, that more than other places has uh, in these various cycles and times tried to encourage people to, bice- to bicycle. And it seemed to offer benefits in New York that were not necessarily different than other cities, but maybe just uh, greater in terms of degree of the kind of benefits they could offer because of the nature of New York's size, density, um, geography. Fascinating. You speak of a cyclical nature in this response right now and in your book as well, that cycling has a boom and bust cycle of enthusiasm and infrastructure construction. How did that boom and bust cycle impact the way you wanted to tell this story or perhaps the types of archives you could or could not find? So it presents, um, on the one hand, uh, a challenge because it it suggests to lay people, perhaps, and um, at first blush, a suggestion that bicycling is a kind of novelty that comes and goes and never has any real permanence and therefore its effect and its significance in terms of American history or New York City history is minimal. Um, So part of the challenge is trying to suggest that although it does have a cyclical history, we can in fact learn a great deal about each of these particular moments on their own, but also in examining why the bicycle has come and gone and why it keeps coming back. Um, So it's not uncommon for some mode of mobility to appear in a kind of faddish way or some recreational or some exercise um, tool to come and go. But what's unusual is that the bicycle keeps coming back and the device is largely mechanically very similar in terms of design as it was 130 years ago. And yet it is as popular in New York City today as it ever was. So there's something indeed recurring and permanent in a way about the bicycle, even if there are these many um, downward periods. Um, But it makes doing the research interesting and it makes writing the book in some ways difficult because you don't want it just to present as a a kind of continual up and down in in a very dizzying fashion. And I wanted to think about continuing Um, threads, but it also creates the reality that in some ways each boom cycle is starting from scratch because much of what happened in the previous boom period uh, had been largely forgotten, not just by the participants, but in some ways by um, legislators, politicians, the legal frameworks. There are laws that are passed in the early period that are simply, as far as I can tell, just forgotten, never erased from the books, but time lapses enough that people just no longer recall what kind of ordinances had been passed. Um, And the infrastructure, the kind of gains that cyclists are able to win are often erased. Um, So the next time cycling becomes popular, sometimes there with uh, a blank slate and the challenges of making 
cycling an integral part of the transportation network becomes um, all the greater. And when we're talking about roads, we're talking about big projects, you know, often cast in concrete, things that are not easily changed. One of the most famous or infamous examples is the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, which when it's built has no bike or pedestrian access paths. Uh, and it remains that way today, even though many advocates and many politicians have supported changing it, you know, adding the paths now, which is still possible, is is still very difficult uh, logistically, financially. Um, so that decision not to include bike ped facilities has had really lasting repercussions, even in an age when the political uh, climate and attitude toward those kind of facilities is very different. When you point to specific bike paths in the book and to specific moments of legislation, you make it clear that there are lots lots of vested interests and community groups that are impassioned about the city, including bicycles or perhaps excluding bicycles from their spaces. This is not a history of every law or bike path, and you point that out smartly in the introduction. But you do make an argument about crucial moments of infrastructure and ideological change. Would you be willing to speak to one or perhaps two if I asked you to pinpoint the kind of the most transformative or you think the most illustrative of these moments? Sure. So I think one uh, well-known example, perhaps, um, but one worth thinking about is the creation of the Coney Island cycle path in the mid 1890s that uh, extends from Prospect Park to Coney Island along Frederick Law Olmsted's famous boulevard. And this is um, a beautiful five and a half mile bicycle path built that as far as I can tell is the longest bicycle path in the United States and is marveled as one of the greatest, if not the greatest bicycle paths in the world. And so it's this symbol of New York City cyclist power to be able to change the landscape and to demand space. And it's recreationally, it's recreational oriented largely, and it's meant to take people from a park to a beach to you know, have fun and, and return later that day. But in the sort of weeds of how this got done, uh, a lot of the debates about bicycles and cyclists and what they're for and who they are and what they represent um, are manifest. So the path is is ultimately built, but the deal struck requires that bicycles are no longer allowed on the main drive. So the Coney Island cycle path takes up uh, a portion of, of Ocean Boulevard, uh, but bicyclists have to ride on the path and the path alone. And this decision ends up splintering cyclists into several different camps and illustrates the way in which people are, are having trouble thinking about where bicycles belong in New York City. And some were willing to take the path. It was large and wide and beautiful and was all, and they had them all to themselves. But others saw this as 
kind of infantilizing cyclist or thinking about bicycles only as recreational toys and that in order to make the bicycle a real viable transportation option they needed to preserve the right to the road and so the cyclists themselves couldn't agree on how to sort of proceed and neither could the politicians and this would be a lasting and recurring theme throughout the booms all the way up until today about what the nature of cycling is, whether it's recreational or practical, and if it could be both at the same time, um, and how the city could best accommodate it. What we're seeing here in our conversation seems to be one of the important questions at the center of On Bicycles, a 200-year history of cycling in New York City. This question of public space and what it looks like in New York. In fact, the streets of New York City are the largest part of the city's public space infrastructure. And you introduce this central question on the relationship between cycling and the city's public spaces. What is the nature of street life in New York City? When you look through your sources, you have wonderful sources uh, in this history. One that struck me as really capturing this exact question was in chapter four. You cite a report that says the bicycle is missing the conceptual grounding of what it could be for the city. And the source you cite says the bicycle becomes a stepchild of the transportation world that needed to be anchored conceptually. First, I have to say, what a wonderful source to have found. Maybe you could speak about this conceptual anchoring of the bicycle and the challenge of that and maybe about this source, since it is such a spectacular one. Sure. So that was from, I think, a 1973 uh, New York City Transportation Administration report. And these reports tend to be very bureaucratic in nature. Uh, and so uh, this was a kind of interesting report in which, you know, bureaucrats were uh, waxing philosophical in a way about uh, transportation and and bicycles in particular, and I think they they hit it on the head in calling the bicycle uh, this you know stepchild of the transportation world. Even people who are engineers, uh, people working in what we now know as the DOT, the Department of Transportation, were really wrestling and struggling with this question about the nature of the bicycle. Uh, is it more like a pedestrian? Is it more like a motor vehicle? And they knew where pedestrians should go and they knew how to legislate motor vehicles on the roads. Um, but the bicycle admittedly was uh, a tricky device that shared some characteristics with what we would think of more traditionally as vehicles and in some ways was very different uh, in terms of how lightweight the vehicle is, the speed at which cyclists move, the vulnerability they have to the elements and to uh, crashes. Um, so, and we see, depending on how one, including whether they're in government or not, thinks about that question, thinks about really the nature of the bicycle and what kind of urban animal it is really profoundly changes the solutions about uh, what 
what the city might do in terms of accommodating bicycles. And in the same report, this is in uh, the early 1970s. We have another environmentalist movement. Uh, this is the year of the oil crisis, transportation alternatives, which becomes a big uh, advocate and lobbying group for promoting bicycles is formed the same year. So there's a lot of excitement and energy. And the city actually considers some pretty bold plans uh, in order to promote cycling, uh, but most of which never come to fruition. It's fascinating to see such kind of uh, theoretical framing, as you say, in a government report. Your book is full of questions that are compelling and full of individuals. It never feels as if this is a story of how legislation has been made about the bicycle. It's full of people on bikes and falling off bikes. Can you talk a little bit about how you landed on the figures that you introduce in this history and why you use individual cyclists in particular? I think I, I mean, I think it's an it's a it's always a hard it's always a challenge to think about how you tell a historical story that covers so much ground. So this is a book that spans two hundred years, and most of us academics are used to working with much shorter time periods. Um, so. On the one hand, that was a challenge. On the other hand, it was kind of fun because it it sort of exempted me from feeling like I had to chronicle every little thing. Um, and so I was picking and, and choosing uh, examples that illustrated something that I thought was important. And oftentimes individuals and particular cyclists were are able to uh, illuminate important issues in ways that are, are interesting because we're, of course, drawn to humans and, and personal stories. So one chapter in particular, uh, I frame around two cyclists in New York in the end of the 19th century. One is Arthur Hyde, who I picked in large part because his wheeling diary is preserved in the um, New York Historical Society. And this is a several volume diary that documents every single ride that he took. And the other is a woman named Violet Ward, who also left uh, copious records. And she lived in Staten Island and was kind of at the forefront of promoting the bicycle uh, as a tool for women uh, and a, a way to um, see the city in a different way and perhaps to see women in a different way. So it was fun to think about telling this story through somewhat of a biographical lens and more recent, the more recent history. So the book goes up to 2019. And um, so naturally it seemed um, like I should interview people who were important players in promoting or protesting against bicycles in, in recent years. And I had the pleasure of conducting some oral, in oral history interviews with bike messengers from the 1980s. Um, and these were just fascinating conversations that I wanted to be able to share with the reader. Did those oral history interviews, these conversations with 
like messengers, for example, change the types of questions you were asking or the story you wanted to tell in On Bicycles? Mostly they gave me more texture and understanding. So, you know, from press reports and city records, I could get a lay of the sort of the land and the general landscape and the big issues. But some of the character, uh, the texture, uh, and, and, and things, small things about, you know, trying to understand what it's like to be a bike messenger in the 1980s. Uh, is pretty hard to do from just reading uh, news reports. So um, they did they did make me think differently about uh, what it meant to be a, a cyclist at the time. And talking to many early cyclist people who were cycling in the '60s, let's say in New York or the early '70s, they also made it hit home just how sort of uh, unusual it was to be a cyclist. So I could look at traffic reports and I could glean from bike sales and other and other documents that, you know, bicycling was not a popular activity in New York in such and such a year. But from talking to individuals, I got the sense of how much they felt like outcasts, a kind of fringe group that was engaged in this activity that everybody thought was strange or frivolous or bizarre. Um, and it created this kind of counterculture at the time um, that I think I only really got a sense of from talking to people. Uh, and it's hard, you know, living in our, our modern world to, to uh, appreciate one in which cycling has become much more mainstream, even if not completely mainstream. The section of On Bicycles that talks about the bike messenger cohort and the role they played in the city and their really antagonistic relationship with the municipal government speaks to that idea again that some, there's something about being an outlaw or dangerous or chaotic that has to do with the bike messenger. What do you make of the of the bike ban that you write about under uh, Mayor Ed Koch and what it tells us about the role of the bike messenger in the city in this time? So this was a fascinating story in 19 the summer of 1987 Ed Koch proposed banning bicycles from three major avenues in Midtown Manhattan and the purpose was to rid bike messengers from the Midtown Manhattan District. And messengers became to him and others at the time a symbol of lawlessness. Um, and in the end, the ban is defeated by protesting messengers who line the streets each evening after work and march up and down Sixth Avenue uh, and, and demand that Koch backs down, which after a series of protracted legal battles, uh, he ultimately does. But the, the kind of most interesting thing is how we think of cyclists and how the messengers in the late 80s become one of the dominant kind of cultural symbols of the cyclist. And it's very different than the other predominating image of the cyclist at the time in the late 80s, which is essentially 
the the yuppie, a kind of young white professional who lives in New York City and puts on a racing bike on top of his or her Volvo and goes out into the country on some long recreational ride. And here the messengers who are predominantly not white, who are making very little money, who have no health insurance, who are uh, risking life and limb um, to do this are very, are very stark, are in contrast to one another, but they're both cyclists of different kinds uh, and they see themselves very differently. And in many cases, they don't ally with one another in terms of uh, promoting legislation and infrastructure. But the bike ban is a rare instance in which they do. And the cycling community at large, including the bike lobbying groups, comes to um, the defense of, of the messengers who, in the late 80s, this is essentially the peak of bike messengering in New York. There are about 5,000 messengers, and they're just an ubiquitous presence uh, on the streets. And when you talk to people who worked as messengers then, they often have nostalgia about it and talk about crashes and near crashes and and the danger is certainly part of the the romance but um it it it, it was and, and remains this kind of glorified uh job despite the fact that it was extremely dangerous that it was low paying that it came with no benefits um but you know yeah the kind of bike and the attitude and the look of the bike messenger has, is some ways iconic for the New York City streetscape. A movie or a TV show opening will have traffic in Midtown, gridlock, honking taxis, and then a bike messenger moving in between these uh, these other types of uh, transportation. Is it possible to say that the bike messenger represents the cyclist in New York City? Is it possible to define a single cyclist in this history? I think it's it's hard to define a single cyclist, but there have always been kind of prevailing archetypes and um, the predominant image of who a cyclist was. And in the 80s, in the late 80s in particular, I think it certainly was this image of the bike messenger weaving in and out of traffic. Uh, and there were popular movies, most famously Quicksilver, which starred Kevin Bacon at the time, that again romanticized life, uh, the life of being uh, a bike messenger. But in the notion of who and what a bike messenger is also changes over time. And so in New York in the 21st century, for example, we still have plenty of bike messengers, but more often than not, they're working for uh, delivery companies that are delivering, you know, products from grocery stores or from Amazon, uh, and they are sort of third-party delivery people. They're often wearing helmets. They often wear uniforms. Uh, and they're seen in a very different way. And then an, another group of bike messengers that aren't often seen as bike messengers, but they do most of the messengering in a way, are delivery people who are often bringing food from restaurants uh, to people's apartments. And many of these uh, bike delivery people are non-white, uh, and many of them have been riding 
in recent years, e-bikes, which have come under fire of the administration. Uh, so they're, even though they're bike messengers in a way, are seen as very different. So not only is there not a kind of single cyclist, there's not even a kind of single messenger. And when somebody says, I was a bike messenger, that often calls to mind a particular kind of image. Speaking of the diversity within the cyclist community that you have researched and now written about, you mentioned Violet Ward earlier. Could we talk more about how gender shapes the cycling experience in the history you're telling? So from the very beginning, cycling was an activity dominated by men uh, throughout much of the 19th century, and particularly when those high-wheel bicycles are popularized, they're seen as so dangerous and uh, off-limits, especially for uh, skirt-wearing women. And there are, of course, notable exceptions, and there are women who are riding them, and even some women who are racing them. But by the time we get to the the modern design of the bicycle, which they call the safety bicycle, in part to attract women who had been discouraged from riding these dangerous high wheelers. Um, women, famously suffragettes and Susan B. Anthony and Frances Willard and, and others promote the bicycle as an emancipatory tool, as a way that women could um, challenge existing social norms about dress, about behavior, about um, freedom of movement, uh, about courtship patterns, and ultimately hope that the device would be uh, a, div a tool of independence. Uh, and, and one New York woman who who helped champion uh, some of those ideas was named Violet Ward, who wrote a book uh, that explained how women should and should not ride a bicycle. And, and she was very technically oriented, and she goes pages upon pages about how to mount a bicycle and how to push on the pedals correctly and what to eat and what to wear and how to train. Um, and she's a kind of fascinating figure, somebody we would, you know, as historians call a, a new woman. She has a close circle of female friends. She never gets married. Um, and, and she falls in love with cycling and sees this uh, as a tool that has helped her and as a tool that can help uh, women around the country. So she becomes uh, a staunch promoter of it. Another group of figures who are predominant across this history you have uh, told are power brokers, particularly transportation power brokers. And I was struck by the parallels that emerge from the LaGuardia administration in the 1930s and the Bloomberg administration in the 21st century. We've made it uh, pretty far before talking about Robert Moses. <laughs> But then here we are at the end. Perhaps you could speak to these transportation power brokers of the 30s. And Bloomberg's administration often harkens back to this era of big infrastructure and social change and community building. 
uh, consciously makes these choices from the parks department to transportation. Maybe you could speak about how transportation governance is crucial to this story. Sure. So Robert Moses has, of course, a tremendous effect on the landscape of New York and particularly the transportation infrastructure. And he wields a tremendous amount of power and launches an an unbelievable number of, of projects, massive construction projects. And he is known rightly as an automobile champion. And we all know the story about highways built and expressways proposed that, you know, failed uh, to come to be. But what I uncovered in this book was a kind of fascinating uh, detour, if you will, in that Moses was all in, in a way, on bikes in the late 1930s. And he, in fact, proposes uh, a bike path plan, a network that uh, amounts to 58 plus miles, would have amounted to more than 58 miles of bike paths. And just to give some context, New York at the time had about five and a half miles of bike paths, and that was being generous. And most other cities around the country were building almost nothing. So he's proposing as far as I can tell, the most ambitious bike infrastructure plan at the time, and one of the most in American history. And here's this guy who's, of course, famously uh, a champion of the automobile. So it's this fascinating uh, story. And had the money come through, he was proposing that most of these paths be built with New Deal uh, Washington money. Some of it came and some of the paths were built, but most of the money Uh, ended up drying up before he was able to lay these paths. But had the money come, I think, in fact, uh, they would have been built and maybe even more would have been built. And perhaps the way we think of his legacy would have been different. But it's important to keep in mind he was building for only one kind of cycling, and that is recreational cycling. And he saw the bicycle as a toy largely for children or childish adults who wanted to exercise And he wanted to build pleasure paths in part to keep the cyclists off the roads in order to make them uh, more conducive to automobile traffic. Um, And there are some some parallels, at least just in terms of the scale of thinking and the scope of projects and the transformation wrought uh, in terms of the 21st century. So Bloomberg enters office, uh, of course, in the wake of of 9-11 and His first few years in office, the bicycle is, in his mind, largely a pest. Uh, Critical mass rides are are beginning to take hold, uh, and there are infamous clashes between the New York Police Department and critical mass protesters on on bicycles. But once Bloomberg warms to the idea of of climate change and making this one of his priorities of fighting global warming, uh, he taps Jeanette Sadi Khan in 2007 to be commissioner of the Department of Transportation, and she ushers in uh, the boldest uh, and most radical reorientation of New York streets in in many many decades. And so, some people, you know, compare her to Moses in that fashion. Other people liken her to Jane Jacobs, insofar as many of her projects were. Uh, 
intended to de-emphasize automobile traffic and promote the bicycle, promote pedestrian, uh, and promote other kinds of, of ways of moving about the city. And it's under her watch and the Bloomberg administration that New York begins to build protected bike lanes that we see first in the West Village of Manhattan and then spread throughout the city. Uh, and of course, ultimately launches City Bike, which becomes by far and away the nation's largest and most successful bike share program. Writing a history that comes all the way up to the present must present its own unique challenges. Where do you see your uh, book leading you to new questions that you can't yet answer about the bicycle as a type of mobility in 21st century New York? Historians are always asked about the future, you know, what's coming next based on what I've seen in terms of the past. So that's always a kind of a challenge of writing something coming to the up to the present day is we're forced or at least encouraged to think about what this all means for the future. And um, frankly, that's a hard that's a hard question to to answer and and to think about. I'm certainly sensitive um, to similarities or historical analogies or ways in which debates about, for example, congestion pricing in the last year or regulations on e-bikes or what to do about e-scooters, how these debates echo other debates in history and how the history of cycling has shaped the context of these debates and the landscapes in which they're being debated. Um, so, you know, I think, I think urban planners, architects, politicians, uh, cyclists, people who don't like cycling uh, could, you know, certainly used to think about the past and history as a way to understand what might be possible. Uh, and hopefully the research, my historical research could, could help guide them at least to, to think about making smarter decisions in the future, whatever, whatever those are. But uh, yeah, I was going to say, go ahead, go ahead. But I'm done writing about bicycles. Two books about bicycles sounds <laughs> sounds like enough to me. <laughs> so you, you have other questions that you want to answer. Yes, I'm still interested in New York, and you know, bicycles will be riding by in the background, but we'll see. I was wondering, does your readership come to you with bicycle facts, experiences, stories? As a New Yorker reading this book. I was delighted by it. And also it made me think about how bicycles are part of my life, things I've had delivered, things I've seen ride by on bicycles. Do you get good stories? Yes. So one of the, the best parts about you know writing a book is the surprise connections that it might make or people who you meet as a result. And so I've been very fortunate to get you know, emails from people who would say, oh, I read your book and I just wanted you to know, you know, I was riding my bike in the 50s in Brooklyn and 
it was like this or um, other kinds of stories about people's own experience that sometimes jived with what I said or sometimes perhaps uh, was a little different than the norm, perhaps. But, um, yeah, people um, are personal, have their own impressions, of course, of history and their own personal experience. Um, So that makes it it makes it fun. There are a lot of people who are not just casual riders, but also really interested in bicycles. So there's, um, you know, people who are excited about it, which is, which is good. I'll think of your history the next time I balance my (laughs) bike basket as I move through Brooklyn. The other thing is if you write a book about something, so I don't know, um, that exists in the world that's just so you know sometimes we historians and academic historians write works that are let's say very theoretical or narrow or about subjects people haven't heard of but when you write a book you know about the history of bicycling in new york city people first know what that is but it also leads to uh one getting lots of bicycle stuff so people, you know, when they see a bicycle pin or a book or a backpack or a T-shirt or whatever, often think of me and sometimes get me stuff. So my closet is full of bicycle ephemera and knickknacks and, you know, stuff like that. And sometimes I'm, I think my colleagues here. Maybe hopefully they won't listen to this so I can say this. You know, they think of me as the bike guy, but I'm not really a bike guy. I'm just a historian who wrote about bikes, but Where does your research take you if not to bicycles? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but um, I have a a couple of ideas I'm excited about. Well, I hope that you'll think carefully about what might come in the mail. <laughs> yes, well, about these next topics, you'll end up with design books, foodstuffs. <laughs> That's right. There are a lot of things we should consider before starting a project, and one of them is, you know, not just what you're going to be known for, but what kind of stuff your mom might get you. <laughs> I think uh, collecting bicycle paraphernalia must must be worth it. It's been a lovely history to read, and I'm sure people will continue to send you bikes <laughs> in the mail. By all means, I'm, I'm, I'm ready and waiting for more. So thank you. Evan Friss, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book on bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City. Thank you so much for doing this. It was fun.